Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Hopeless Romantic, The Untold History of Ethiopia. Yes, we are back again for the third section of the chapter. Don't get it twisted. We've been talking about this chapter for a while. Uh, hopefully, we could uh, finish it up today um, and we'll talk about uh, whatever is left over. Uh, with that being said, let's... Um, uh, gather our thoughts for the prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Holy, holy, holy is your name, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you uh, for teaching us. Uh, and, and we ask that you give us wisdom as we talk about uh, difficult material. And uh, we call this in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the intercession of the Virgin Mary, and that of the angels and saints, we pray. Amen. Uh, once again, I want to encourage you guys, if you haven't done so already, make sure to go to Amazon and purchase my book, Hopeless Romantic, The Untold History of Ethiopia. And uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at dmulina, or you can uh, follow me on Twitter at dawitmulina6. Uh, I want to take a second to thank my patrons who have supported me. Honestly, I wouldn't be able to do this without your support. And if you, listener, want to become a patron yourself, you may do so by going to patreon.podbean.com forward slash Dawit Mulun. Again, that is patreon.podbean.com forward slash Dawit Mulun. All right. So last time we talked about a lot of stuff. And uh, we talked about the ascension of uh, the Solomonic dynasty with the Yukuno Amalak. And, we, you know, we asked some tough questions. Is it like what the historians say? Even Ethiopian historians, they claim that Yukuno Amalak went down to his Amhara troops, gathered them together, marched down and killed the Zagwe dynasty simply because they were of a different ethnic group. I mean, that sounds harsh. And... Uh, last time we talked about that's a simplistic way to look at a history, isn't it? Uh, obviously, history is complicated, and and at least from everything we saw, it doesn't look like ethnic disputes was the center of uh, uh was at the center of the conflict. Moreover, we suggested that uh there may be the hands of Egyptians in this. A question that I haven't heard people uh ask um what role did egypt have to play to uh so-called ethnic disputes occurring or just conflicts occurring in ethiopia um the first mention of of uh, a king of amara we find is by an egyptian leader that's a problem and of course the timing of it is also quite interesting isn't it Right at a time where Ethiopians were beginning to start a relationship with the Syrian Orthodox Church, suddenly we get an Egyptian leader saying, hey, you are the king of Amara, thereby separating him from the rest of the country. It's time that we kind of like wake up and say, wait a minute. What are all these different influences uh, like Westerners and, and, and other uh, you know, outsiders? How are they influencing the way we look at our own history? And that is the problem. We also talked about the Oromo conflict. 
Of course, part of the grievances that we hear from uh, Oromo leaders is that, you know, throughout history, uh, they've been painted in a negative light. And Abba Bahari is one of those people that said very unkind things about the Oromos. Now, in the other end, we I hear of people uh, trying to deny whatever Abba Bahari said or trying to defend it. No, it's wrong. Again, just to have a beautiful nation. Look, I, I'll tell you straight up, I love my country. But in order for me to love my country, I cannot deny the fact that uh, these horrific things happen and we have to address it head on. But yet, we said that, you know, in Ababahari's defense, not that what he said was right, but he saw an extreme case wherein his house was burned down. Of course, he was angry. Uh, not that it's, it justifies what he said, but this is why. And Ababahari's uh, kind of description of the Oromo community does not at all represent the overall kind of feel and attitude that people had about the Oromos at that time. We mentioned kings like Susunios, who's very much friends with the Oromos and, and, and landed many people into the uh, imperial court and worked alongside them. So yes, people fought in history. Some had to do with ethnic disputes and we just have to accept it. And others, not so much. They got along. They were happy and they were friendly. That is what a nation is. And it's not just about ethnicity. As we'll see, another cause of conflict in Ethiopia was religion as well. While many of the Ethiopian leaders were members of the Ethiopian Orthodox Sahadu faith, others were often marginalized and prevented from worshiping in their faith in the way they wanted. Again, this is a very hot topic. And as a deacon of the church, I've got to admit some part of the history. We just cannot deny and paint everything as if it was all rainbows. There were conflicts. And we've got to address it. Again, this is one of those histories that some try to avoid. But we've got to address it. They occurred. So we have to talk about it. One of the conflicts that stands out is the marginalization and discrimination of the Jewish community in Ethiopia. Or in the West, you would hear it being referred to as anti-Semitism. As you may know, discrimination of the Jew is not just an Ethiopian problem. It is believed to have originated in the early days of Christianity. As the Jewish community refused to accept this new religion, harsh criticism started growing toward this group of people. The problem worsened when Rome became Christianized. With later emperors forming anti-Semitic laws, the Jews community was marginalized as was uh, on the receiving end of severe oppression. All these events culminated during World War II as Nazi Germany killed over 6 million Jewish people in what would be later known as the Holocaust. After these horrific events, the world came together and vowed to protect and support the Jewish community by renouncing anti-Semitic rhetoric. And yet, there are many texts, especially in the Ethiopian Orthodox Soharu Church, that appear 
to talk about this community in a very derogative way. I should probably stop here and say that anti-Semitic rhetoric is considered to be a, a real problematic. And you guys will hear like in, um, in government, the Senate and, and in the House, if anyone even appears to have said anything anti-Semitic, they lose their job automatically. I mean, people don't play around this. So uh, uh, a lot of attention is given to it in Ethiopian studies. Right. So one of the places that um, uh, people say, look, there is anti-Semitic rhetoric is in uh, the famous Ta'amira Mariam work. If you guys don't know, The Miracles of Mary or Ta'amira Mariam is one of the most important literatures within the Ethiopian or Eritrean Orthodox auto churches. Although the miracle genre is not unique to these countries, they were perhaps the places where the miracles were received most favorably. The initial translation was about over 70 miracles from a Copto Egyptian forelog at the end of the 14th century. But by the 18th century, the number of miracles in Giz manuscripts had more than tripled, with many of the additional miracles being unique to Ethiopian Eritrea. That means that a lot of the newer manuscripts were undoubtedly being published by Ethiopians in Ethiopia or Eritrea. As additional miracles were being added, the old miracles continued to be copied in other manuscripts. However, the decision of which miracles to include or in what order to arrange them was not consistent. This phenomenon has been described in the following manner. Each manuscript is substantively different, ranging from three to more than 300 tales. Even if two manuscripts have almost all the same tales, they rarely appear in the same order but vary in position. This suggests the faithful saw each miracle individually. That is to say, they probably saw the miracles of Mary more as a library than a single book. For this reason, they could freely choose which miracle to include and which to exclude in the new manuscript being compiled. The miracle of Mary is of interest for our discussion because each miracle gives a clue to the type of society that existed at the time. For example, miracles that involved sexual temptations revealed that during the time of composition, sexual temptation was an issue in the community. Similarly, miracles that depict foreigners in a positive light suggest communities' attitude towards non-Ethiopian travelers they may have interacted with. It's hard to imagine the compilers of the time including positive adjectives to describe a person they viewed negatively. Therefore, the Miracles of Mary genre serves as a window to the early periods and the various concerns that indigenous were faced with. To get an idea of the Ethiopian Christian's perspective about the Jews, we can read the miracle that deal with the Jewish community. Take, for example, how the miracle known to Westerners as Miracle Number 452 portrays a man who happens to be a Jew. I'll read the English uh, for you guys. There was one church in the city of Rome which was built in the name of Our Lady Mary. And in the border of the city lived one Jew who violently seized everything he found. And one day he came while hiding his sword within his bosom so he could kill Christians. From this account, we can see the antagonist is represented by a Jew, thereby advancing the so-called anti-Semitic rhetoric against the community. 
More specifically, the Christians having been killed by the hand of a Jew further advances the negative sentiment that presumably existed among the Ethiopian Christians. But even when considering this example, it is it has often been suggested that the inclusion of terms like Ayhudawi, that is, of the Jews, in Ethiopian Christian literature may have been nothing more than a literary device meant to represent an enemy as opposed to it being a negative sentiment about the Jewish community per se. Admittedly, these type of writings wherein the antagonist is often described as being a Jew are also present in other Ethiopian Christian works. We simply cannot deny this reality. But as we discussed, these writings may have been used only as a literary device, and yet many Western scholars often associate st statements like this to be an example of an Ethiopian Christians marginalizing the Ethiopian Jews. For example, uh, take uh, uh, Ullendorf, Edward Ullendorf. We've talked about him in previous uh, uh, podcasts. This is the guy who thinks we're smart. Um, and, and this Ullendorf, he cites the work of Rathjens, who claims the Jews were probably subjected to severe persecutions. Probably. But the very next sentence says the following. There exists, of course no records to substantiate this opinion, but in view of a cherished descent from Israel and the widespread Judaization pre-Christian Abyssinia, one may well doubt the contingency of this conjuncture. So even though there are no records to substantiate the claim that Jews were subject to severe persecutions, he's still going to assume it happened. And this is my problem with the West's retelling of our history. As I mentioned before, because anti-Semitism was a major problem in the West, when some of the Western scholars study Ethiopian history, they assume the same events took place in the region. Much worse, they inject their internal prejudice about Africa, that is, tribal wars breaking out all the time, into the history of our people. The problem is... Many young people reading these type of articles assume the issues that exist now, partly orchestrated by foreign forces, have been long-lasting disputes. All who study history, but especially scholars, have to be responsible in the way they retell events because what they write can lead to many unnecessary conflicts. Again, as for conflicts and issues, Ethiopia had many of them. And yes, there was clear anti-Semitic language present in varying texts, but that does not necessarily translate to the persecution of the Jewish community. At any rate, religious disputes were not limited to just Christianity and Judaism, of course, but were found with Islam as well. We talked about how early Ethiopians welcomed the foreign Muslims into Ethiopia, and Similar to the advent of the Ottoman community, Muslims were able to have great success in the country and easily assimilate with the society. Their influence was seen, especially in economic growth, in regions like the Dahalak Islands, which we talked about previously. Another region where uh, Muslims' influence was easily noticed was in a place known as Harar. 
The people in this region, like in other parts of the country with a large Muslim population, were free to practice their faith and more importantly, often ruled under the local ruling family who were also Muslim. But all that began to change during the reign of King Amdazion I. By the way, remember this name. Uh, he'll come up again in the uh, future podcast. It was during his reign that Solomonic dynasty saw a large expansion of its territory. Through a series of military campaigns, he was able to successfully grow his kingdom and was ready to let everyone know who was in charge. One of the ways he did uh, this was by forcing local territories to pay tributes, often in the form of taxes. Those who refused to comply would often be met by his large military force. Successive kings after Amdazion I also had their eye on Islamic provinces. Because of their economic success, the Muslims were often taxed greatly. Ultimately, the kings began to discriminate against the Muslims and said they could not carry arms, ride horses, and build mosques. As you can imagine, the Muslim community did not like this new relationship with the leader of the state. Eventually, some attempted to take control of the country, but with little success. But in the latter half of the 16th century, the Salamanic dynasty would finally meet its match with the rise of Ahmed b. Ibrahim al-Azi, a.k.a. Ahmed Grani. Of course, you guys know him as Ahmed Grani. Since the account of Ahmed Grani is widely known and documented, I'm not going to spend too much time giving a detailed account. If you're interested in the details of what occurred, you can find more information in the classic book Church and State in Ethiopia by Tadessa Tamrat. However, if you're not familiar with this historical figure, here's a quick overview. Essentially, tired of paying taxes in his region of Harar, Grain decided to wage a campaign against the Christian Ethiopian king. Although other Muslims had attempted to wage similar campaigns in the past, what probably made Ahmed Grania's conquest successful was his ability to effectively recruit foreign soldiers during his campaign. Having secured enough military assistance, he went on to defeat the Solomonic king. Unfortunately, the campaign of Ahmed Grania did not end with the royal court. The next events are best summarized by the scholar Franz Christoph Muth, who says the following. At the Battle of Wassel in Amara on the 27th of October 1531, Ahmed Grani missed capturing the fugitives Libna Dingil, who fled around from place to place in his own empire until he reached the isolated monastery of Debradamo, where he died on the top of the mountain on September 2nd, 1540. Of his four sons, Fikdor was killed by the Muslims in the fighting in 1539, while another brother, the king's son Minas, was taken prisoner. As to the remaining royal family, obliged to move from place to place, Ahmed Grain was not able to capture the famous royal prison as the siege of Amba Gessan al-Anba on 24 and the 25th of no- November 1531 without any order of Ahmed Grain was a failure. But everywhere, his soldiers burnt and pulled down many churches and monasteries, plundered their churches, burnt the holy books to ashes, and massacred the monks and the priests. Most church fathers speak of these events as if they were recollecting a memory from their lifetime. Some even claim that the church is still recovering from the damage caused by Grania's campaigns. 
His crusades against Christians continued for about 15 years until he was finally defeated by Emperor Galaudios in the mid-16th century. As I mentioned earlier, these are alarming events. Our history is not all about peace and love, but include dark tales of war, disputes, and both ethnic and religious conflicts. Even with these events in mind, one has to wonder how many of the conflicts were really inspired by disputes between the Christians and Muslims. Hussein Ahmed points out that even though the persecution by Christian Solomonic kings did in fact exist, the attention of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church were more directed against pagan religious practices than against Islam. Moreover, we must not forget one of the main factors that inspired Ahmed Grani's military campaigns was the imposition of taxes by the state officials. One can only wonder what would have happened if the tax regulations had been lifted from Islamic provinces. Could we have avoided these tumultuous periods in history between the Christians and Muslims? Who knows? We can only speculate. One thing we do know for certain, however, is that the Christians and Muslims have since come to love one another and live peacefully in Ethiopia. As you may have already witnessed around your circle, several members of the Christian community have gone to marry Muslims and are very happy. And yet the relationship between the two communities has been tainted by Western scholarship. In an article titled Islamic Cultural Traditions of Medieval Ethiopian Eritrea, the author states, Christians have tended to consider Muslims as eternal refugees to whom the Ethiopian state mercifully can grant protection and safety, but without recognizing them as real fellow countrymen. This statement is extremely offensive to both Christians and Muslims. As I mentioned before with the countless intermarriages that take place between the two communities, what are we to say about the children who are the product of Christian and Muslim parents? This article was published by the prestigious Brill in the volume titled A Companion to Medieval Ethiopian Eritrea in the year 2020. It is not a work we can dismiss as being outdated but is contemporary with our time. There is no denying that there are extreme views in Ethiopia among some who may indeed share such beliefs. The Ethiopian community is not a monolith. We have varying views about opinions and just about everything. But this is not an isolated issue. Consider the following statements made while making the case for Amhara being the center of Ethiopia's kingdom. I'll read the translation here. Amhara is seen as the center of the kingdom by Europeans as well as Ethiopian Muslims. Here's the problem. The author makes this statement after reviewing documents written by both European authors and Arab authors who chronicled the campaigns taken by Ahmed Gran. In the case of the European authors, we have their writings on Ethiopia. Hence, we can make a generalization about the foreigner's idea since they wrote behind what they thought. Even then, it would be wrong of us to take the writings of people like Francisco Alvarez and to generalize about people in Portugal, his motherland. 
Similarly, it is improper to take writings made by an Arab who happened to be a Muslim and project his perception of the region on an entire Ethiopian Muslim community. This chronicle may indeed be a projection of the prevailing mindset, i.e. Amhara being the center of Ethiopia among Ahmed Grani and his army. But even then, it's hard to conclude from just these writings whether other Ethiopian Muslims who may not have participated in this campaign shared the same sentiment. To put it another way, the perception of Amhara being the central region of Ethiopia is not necessarily a feature shared among the Ethiopian Muslims in total, but perhaps something that may be unique to Ahmed Grani and his army. Moreover, even if these documents that chronicle the campaigns taken by Ahmed Grind were written by people who happen to be Ethiopian Muslims, that does not necessarily imply these were the views of the Ethiopian Muslim population as a whole. One should also remember the time period we are discussing, around the 16th century. Most of the Ethiopian community, both Christians and Muslims, would likely have been illiterate. Hence, those who did manage to read and write represented an elite society. They likely came from powerful and wealthy families who enabled them to get the education they desired. This in turn would mean the literate were few and had a different lifestyle from the illiterate majority, a lifestyle that formed their worldview. Hence, taking out the writing of a particular author who likely represented a worldview held by a minority and projecting it on a larger society is simply not right. To understand what the community's attitude about a particular topic is, one must be able to survey the population, analyze the data, and finally publish the result. Sadly, that is not what we find here. The irony of the comment made by the author is that she was making the point of how ideas were wrongfully being projected on the Ethiopian society, but in doing so, she made the same error. Now, in my book, I go on to write a small letter of sort to Western scholars, pleading with them to rethink about how they do scholarship. And I want to read that letter to you guys. It reads, Dear Western scholars, Please stop giving the account of our history by lumping us together into specific categories by way of race, language, and religion. It is precisely these type of statements discussed above that are causing a significant number of Ethiopians to have major conflicts. The reality is that many Ethiopians are learning about their own history from Westerners. And young, passionate Ethiopians reading things of this nature by celebrated Western scholars inevitably leads to more conflict. There are many Christians who love Muslims, and there are some who don't. But the Christian community in Ethiopia does not have a spokesperson who can represent the varying ideological differences among them. This is nothing against anyone personally, but as we will see in the future, there is something fundamentally wrong with the way modern Ethiopian studies are being conducted. For the last time, I'm not denying the many internal conflicts that didn't in fact take place in Ethiopia, but the causes of these disputes were much more complicated than what some try to suggest. It is far too easy to buy into the narrative of primitive Africa's fighting and assume all these conflicts in Ethiopia's history simply come down to ethnic or religion differences. Moreover, 
It's improper to tell the history of Ethiopia only from the vantage point of clashes. Just as in marriage, we must recognize there are events that occurred that deserve to be celebrated. On the same measure, there are events that deserve criticism. At the end of the day, it is the fusion of these events that give us the full picture of our history. I'm simply proposing we even the playing field and also include the jollier period of Ethiopia's history. It's time to change. I, for one, am here to be a catalyst for that change. I want others to see the truth as it should be seen. And I'll hang in there with dear Ethiopia till the end. That is exactly why I'm writing this book. Sincerely in love, Dawit. P.S. Let's have some open, civilized discourse about it. Sadly, no one has answered the call. And without getting into detail about it, uh, some so-called scholars have doubled down since writing this book and have even resisted the idea of um, addressing major issues that need to be addressed in Ethiopic studies. I now come to you, to the society, uh, to the nation of Ethiopians, to those who are listening, maybe you're not Ethiopian, to see, hey, there is a problem in Ethiopic studies. Our history has been hijacked. And I think we have got to be the ones to voice uh, our opinion, to, 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 to write our own history. Uh, we've got to have a voice in, in, in scholarship. And uh, this is to inspire anyone to get into scholarship and set the record straight. Let people know what our history is really about. I think... Ethiopians should have a role to play in shaping Ethiopian history. With that being said, I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, chapter. I know it was a lot. There was a lot of things that I listed. I told you we were going to talk about conflicts, and I hope I did that. Uh, let me get, let me know if you guys are really listening to this podcast. Uh, reach out to me. Um, uh, you know, post something about you know something you learned. So I know that people are listening. I'm often like, oh, nobody's listening to this. So if you happen to be listening to this podcast, you learned something. Reach out to me on social media. You know, say, hey, I learned this thing, and this is pretty cool. So you know that kind of gives me a little bit of energy to keep going. Um, with that being said, I'll see you guys next time. Once again, I want to encourage everybody to purchase my book if you haven't done so. You can do so by going to Amazon.com. Hopeless Romantic: The Untold History of Ethiopia. If you're not following me on Instagram, you can do so by going on at dmulina and you can follow me. Or on Twitter, you can follow me at davidmulina6. Uh, if you want to become a patron and support, you could do so by going to patron.podbean.com forward slash davidmulina. Again, that's patron.podbean.com forward slash davidmulina. Uh, well, I hope you guys enjoy your time and I'll see you guys. Later.